I'm reading from Luke chapter 6, verse 12. Now it came to pass in those days that he went out to the mountain to pray. So imagine Jesus. This is, we're going to see about uh, nearly a full 24 hours of Jesus' life in this passage. He went out to the mountain to pray and continued all night in prayer to God. Can you imagine Jesus on a mountain? He goes away from the crowds. He goes away from public life. goes away from everyone and finds an isolated place where he has to climb up. It's a bit cold and misty and dewy, and he prays there. And he continued all night in prayer to God. Verse 13, And when it was day, he called his disciples to himself, and from them he chose twelve. So disciples wasn't twelve, it was everyone who was following him. And from the disciples he chose twelve, whom he also named apostles. Funny word, apostles. Um, It just means people who are sent or empowered with a mission. Apostles, not the same as epistles, which is the letters that the apostles wrote in the the Bible, which is very confusing. Um, Verse 14, Simon, whom he also... So it's going to name all the apostles now. Simon, whom he also named Peter, and Andrew, his brother, James and John, Philip and Bartholomew, Matthew and Thomas, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot, Judas the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who also became a traitor. Verse 17. So he's just been up on the mountain praying. Then at the end he calls the disciples together and he chooses 12 out of them. And then verse 17. And he came down with them and stood on a level place with a crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem, from the seacoast of Tyre, and Sidon, who came to hear him and be healed of their diseases. So he's got the twelve, he's got other disciples, he's got a multitude of people from four different countries and regions around there, and he's standing there, and they all come to be healed of their diseases. Verse 18, as well as those who were tormented with unclean spirits, and they were healed, and the whole multitude sought to touch him, for power went out from him and healed them all. Verse 20, then he lifted up his eyes toward his disciples and said, Blessed are you poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you shall be filled. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when men hate you, and when they exclude you and revile you and cast out your name as evil. For the Son of Man's sake, rejoice in that day and leap for joy. For indeed your reward is great in heaven, for in like manner their fathers did to the prophets. And he went on and he preached the sermon on the mount which has been described as the most beautiful words ever to come from a human mouth the most amazing sermon the beatitudes and the sermon on the mount came out of this time when jesus was up on a mountain and praying We've been looking at a series called Letting People See Jesus. We're looking at Jesus' life. We want to look at this man who came to earth, but he said, I am God, and he changed the course of history. He was born in a little poor part of the world to an unmarried, well, a a lady who'd just been married and and was accused of of being um, an illegitimate child. He was... uh, not, not particularly powerful or important, and yet his life has changed the course of history. There's a, a new website which uh, lists the most important and famous and influential people in the whole of history, and Jesus is number one. 
He has changed the world, and if you looked at it from a human point of view, you would say he was nothing. He had nothing to offer, and he changed the world. We're looking at this man because he is God. He's the one that we worship, but also he is our role model and leads us. We follow him, and we're like him, the Bible says. In First John, it says, as Jesus is, so are we in this world. So we're looking at Jesus. And on this day, we have this amazing, beautiful picture of Jesus praying and choosing his disciples. And I just want to look at this. I want us to imagine the scene, um, glean out of it everything that we can, learn the lessons that we have to learn, and then it'll change our lives forever. So the first thing we want to look at is Jesus praying. It came to pass that Jesus went up on a mountain to pray. The Son of God went up on a mountain to pray. That's amazing. That's startling. That's surprising that Jesus needs to pray. Why does he need to pray? He's God. He's full of God. He's full of the Holy Spirit. He's in communication with the Father all the time. He's doing miracles. Why does Jesus need to pray? And if Jesus needed to pray, how much more Do we need to pray? Why did Jesus go to a quiet place? Why didn't he just sit down with his disciples and have a little prayer meeting in the house where they met? Why did he feel he needed to go to a mountain far away in an isolated place to pray? And why did he feel he had to pray all night? Surely he could have prayed in the same hours of the day, between 10 and 12 or whatever, or or some, some better time. Why did he feel he had to pray all night? And what did he do when he prayed? What were his prayers like? What was it like to be next to him while he was praying for the whole night? These are important questions. For me, it's a beautiful picture. There's, there's a couple of other places in the Bible which describe Jesus praying. Um, later on in the Gospels, Peter, James, and John go up with Jesus on a mountain when he has one of his all-night prayer times. And they see him transfigured. His face starts shining like the sun. And his clothes are shining like the sun. And he meets with Moses and Elijah. And he has a discussion. And the glory of God comes down. And the voice of God speaks out of a cloud. It's an amazing experience. And Peter is so amazed by it. He just starts going into blabbermouth mode. He says, oh Lord, it's good. Should we build a house for you here? I mean, it was just weird things he was saying. But it was just the power and glory of God was there. I don't know if that happened every time Jesus prayed, but I have a feeling that that gives us a glimpse of what these prayer times were like. There were times of Jesus communing with his Father, listening to what God was saying, enjoying God's presence. Beautiful times. You know, Jesus said several times in the Gospels, I do nothing except what I see my Father already doing or what I hear my Father saying. And I think it was in these times of prayer that he got what God was doing and what God's heart was and and what God wanted. And he saw and he understood what God was, was all about for the next day or the next period of his ministry. He downloaded all the information that he needed to be able to go out and do what God had given him to do. It's a beautiful picture, and I think you and I need to do the same. The other thing um, the Bible tells us in Hebrews chapter 5, there's a little glimpse. It says this in verse 7. It says, Jesus in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, 
and was heard because of his godly fear. In other words, there were times where Jesus prayed because he was under intense pressure. He knew that people wanted to kill him. And he knew that it wasn't his time yet to be crucified. And so he went to God in prayer. It says with vehement cries. Crying out, Lord, would you save me from death? Crying out to him who could save him from death. And he was heard. Isn't it amazing that the Son of God had to cry out to be saved from death? You would have thought that nothing could kill him until it was his time to die. But actually, the Bible says if he hadn't cried out in prayer, he might have died too early. Isn't that amazing? (laughs) I can see you're a little bit skeptical. Still. You know, we have a funny idea about death. We say the Lord took someone when someone dies. We just think, oh, their days were up there. It was their time to die. But actually the Bible tells us that it was the devil who had the power of death. What, Greg? What? That's not right. What? What are you saying? God's not in control? Listen to this verse from Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14. It says, Jesus shared the same as us. Um, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil. In other words, until Jesus' death on the cross, the devil had the power of death. Isn't that amazing? It says it very clearly in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14. And it was God who could save from death. We need to understand that our prayers are not just an automatic, just, oh, well, I'm just going through the motions. Things change when we pray. (laughs) Things change. You know, the devil has designs and plans against us. And when we pray, those designs are changed. And God intervenes and saves us from things. How many times have we gone through stuff that was never God's will for us because we didn't pray? Pray. And Jesus had to do it. Jesus had to go up on the mountain and cry out to God. God, save me. He spent time listening, retuning himself, getting synced with God again, so that he could hear and understand and pray and go through what he had to go through. And after he prayed, he comes down from the mountain and he does three things. He chooses 12 disciples, 12 apostles out of all these different people. Then he starts to heal people. And it says power was going out from him so that all these people, these multitude of people, were all healed. Imagine this massive big plain, this big field, and there's people from all these different countries. And the power of Jesus is so strong that it's flowing out of him and healing all these people. I think it's because he spent time in prayer. And then he starts to preach the Sermon on the Mount. And the words of wisdom and power come out of his mouth. Why? Because he spent time with God. The other thing I want to just say is that he told us that he does nothing except what he sees his father doing. And sometimes we think that means I must just kind of go around in this weird like twilight mode saying... God, should I step with my left foot now? Should I step with my right foot now? Left foot again? Okay, God. Should I breathe in? Should I breathe out? That's not it. Jesus spent time the night before, and then he just went out and did what he'd seen God telling him to do. And how did God tell him to do stuff? I'm 
sure that God spoke to him directly. There were times when there was a voice. There was an inward feeling of God's spirit. Sometimes Moses and Elijah appeared to him. But I believe also it came from the Old Testament. Reading the Old Testament. Why do I say that? Because every single one of Jesus' miracles was foreshadowed in the Old Testament. He was copying what he'd seen in the Old Testament. Why did Jesus think it was right and good and and okay to feed 5,000 people with, with a few loaves and fishes? Did he just think that up out of his mind? No, he was copying what he'd seen in the Old Testament. In 2 Kings 4 verse 42, a hundred men are fed with a few little loaves of bread. Elisha's there and there's not enough food and, and the people say to him, there's not enough bread. And he says, just use this bread and it, and it grows and expands and feeds a hundred men. He saw all the miracles that he did. He saw them in the Old Testament. Walking on water. Why does he think I can walk on water? Well, remember in, in 2 Kings, again, Elisha, there's an axe head that's sunk in, in, the, in the lake. And Elisha goes out and he speaks to it and the axe head rises up and floats on the water. Do you remember that? That's in the Old Testament. Jesus saw the miracles in the Old Testament and he said, Ah, now I know I can do this. I hope that encourages you, friends. The way that we get power (laughs) is we spend time in God's presence. We worship. We commune with him. We love him. We enjoy his presence. We listen to his voice. We cry out for him to help us in situations, but also we soak in his word and what we see in his word, we say, Lord, can I do that? And he says, yes. (laughs) Do you see this? Do you see how exciting this is? I'm not sure you do. (laughs) This is powerful, friends. Jesus Spent time with the Old Testament Torah, reading it, soaking in God's presence. And God says, you can do this, my son. Friend, you can do the same as Jesus. You know, it says power went out from him and healed them. The Bible says that same power that was in Jesus is in you. That power that went out from him and healed a multitude, thousands of people on a big plane. The power just going out like electricity. That's in you. You don't need to go and find somebody else to heal you and pray for you. It's in you. Whatever Jesus got in that time of prayer, you can get tonight. (laughs) Find a place. Go somewhere alone. Worship, enjoy his presence, and that power starts to flow out. And his mind becomes your mind, and his thoughts become your thoughts. And his word, you look at it, and you read something, and he says, yes, you can do this. And it starts to excite you, and you can become just like Jesus. And the big decisions you have to make. How many times do we go into big decisions, you know, business decisions, family decisions, financial things, career things, studies, all the different decisions we have to make. Should I do this? Should I do that? We need to spend time in prayer, getting our minds in tune with God. Instead of just letting the world's signals and information influence us, we say, Lord, what are you saying? And he says, choose these 12 men. You know, these were strange men. All right, let me go into the next section, talking about the disciples. And he appointed 12, and it names the 12. You know, he had multitudes following him. 
Jesus had multitudes. He had so many thousands of people following him that he could have chosen a better 12 than the 12 he chose. Have you ever thought about this? Sometimes we think Jesus is walking around and there's just 12 little guys following him behind. So he says, okay, you 12 can be my disciples. That wasn't it. He had lots to choose from. He had religious rulers and leaders. He had civic leaders, synagogue rulers. He had um, political people. He had Romans. He had all these different important people. The rich young ruler had many different types of people he could have chosen. And he chose these 12. Let me just tell you a few things about these 12. Um, Peter and Andrew were brothers. And they were fishermen. And they were in a business with James and John and Philip. So there were five of them who knew each other. And James and John were also brothers. So Peter and Andrew, James and John are brothers. And then Philip joins them. There's five of them who are in a fishing business together. Jesus picks them. They're uneducated fishermen from a little backward place called Galilee. And Jesus says, you two brothers, you two brothers, and you, you're in a business. Let's make you my disciples. He took people who already had relationships with each other. There's a good chance that Matthew and James, they're both called the sons of Alphaeus, they were probably brothers as well. So six of the twelve were brothers with each other. There was family links. Five of the twelve were already in a business together. There was a link and a relationship there. John and James were Jesus' cousins. Their mum, Salome, was Mary's sister. This family thing is, is actually quite interesting. You know, John the Baptist was Jesus' cousin. And the guy who led the church after Jesus died was James. He wasn't the James who was one of the apostles. He was James, Jesus' half-brother. And he wrote the book of James in the Bible. Jesus' brother wrote James, the Bible book. And Jude, the book of Jude in the, in the Bible, was written by Jesus' other half-brother. It's fascinating. He chose people who were close to each other. They had a team... Uh, ethic going on already. They knew each other and they were working well together. They got on with him. They weren't the most educated people. They weren't the most influential. They weren't your obvious choice, but God said, choose those ones, those ones, those ones. Matthew was a tax collector. Uh, there was a zealot in them who was a political activist who wanted to kill the Romans. And there was Judas Iscariot, the one who was going to betray him. And he chose him. If you or I had looked at this on paper, we would not have chosen those 12. But God said, those are the ones you must choose. How many decisions in my life and your life do we make based on what's human wisdom instead of what God says? Because when it's God's wisdom, the power of God is in it. Is it okay if we move on for a second now after, after the prayer thing? But folks, please, can I just ask you, Determine in your, in your mind and your heart, I'm going to become a person who spends time on a mountain, maybe not a physical mountain, but in an isolated place with God to change my life. So that I can make decisions, so that the power of God can flow in me. So that I can speak words of wisdom. Amen? Amen. Awesome. Right, let's talk about the disciples. Have you ever thought about... How many people followed Jesus and how few people were in the upper room after he died? Have you ever thought about this? 
When he fed the 5,000, it says, and there were 5,000 men. And you always know that in church meetings, there's always fewer men than women. And that that doesn't count the children. So there were probably about 20,000 people there. He fed thousands. In this story, um, in Luke chapter 6, it says there was a multitude from four different countries on this plan. The numbers of people who followed Jesus were multiplied thousands. And yet, after he died, in the upper room at Pentecost, waiting for him, for the Spirit, there were how many? 120. Where did the rest go? What happened? This number difference is very significant in the Gospels. And it's some, there's an important lesson for you and I in this. Jesus could have started a movement, a church, if you want to call it, of 30,000. Easily. Easily. He could have said, okay, all you guys, we're meeting every Sunday in such and such a place. Come, let's sign a membership form. Okay, we're all together, right? You do, you do this, you do this, right? We've got a group of 30,000. He could have, but he didn't. He focused, please listen to me now. He focused his time and his energy and his attention on 12 And within those twelve, there were three, Peter, James, and John. And within the three, there was one whom he loved, John, his cousin. Jesus wasn't looking for the crowds. The crowds came later. What he was doing is he was discipling people who could replicate and multiply what he was doing. If he had got a crowd of 30,000, but had never discipled 12, that 30,000 after he died would have dissipated and there, would be no, there wouldn't be us. But he chose 12. And he poured his life and he instructed and grew them and developed them. And they developed others to disciple others to disciple others. Can I tell you something amazing? Let's just imagine you could save, get converted one person per day, every day of your life. That would be awesome, wouldn't it? Imagine you could um, make a Christian convert of one person, new person every day. How many in a year? 365. That's awesome. I mean, I don't know anyone who manages that. It's quite amazing to be able to do that. After, let's say, 16 years of doing that, you would have about 5,800 converts. Awesome! Wouldn't that be great? Imagine, you could say after 16 years, I have been responsible for changing the lives of 5,800 people. Awesome! Let's just say you were much better than that. Let's say you could do three a day. Let's say roughly a thousand a year. That you hold crusades and you, you, you get lots of people converted. After 16 years, you've got 16,000 converts. Man, that's fantastic. Imagine you chose one person. And for six months, you discipled that person and poured your life into them taught them everything they needed to know and said to them, now after six months you choose one person and you do the same to them. And then after another six months, they each choose another person and they do the same to them. I'm going to tell you something that's astounding. You know how many people you would have discipled by the end of 16 years? You won't believe me when I say it. 8 billion 
589,934, sorry, 8,589,934,592, more than the population of the planet. Can you see this? There's something, there's a massive lesson for the church here. (laughs) It's not about the crowds. It's about discipling people who will disciple other people. Very, very important. How much of our time and energy and effort is spent just trying to reach out multitude millions and, and then they're not discipled and so they fall away. How much of our church life? Let me just challenge you. I, you. You may not be challenged by this, but I'm deeply challenged by this. How much of our churches are, are just like a, a production, a show? You know, at, at the opera house or, or at some other place, a, a, you know, a public hall, they put on a show and they choreograph it and they get all the, the lines just right and they get all the, the, the music right and the dress looks great and they put on a show and thousands of people come, yay, and they clap, oh, it's wonderful, and we think, yay, we got thousands of people reached. How much of our church life is just a show where people pay a bit of money and they come and they watch Maybe in person or maybe at a big event or maybe on TV or maybe on a CD. And they watch, but they haven't been part of a small discipleship group like Jesus did. How much of, how much of our Christianity is trying to impress masses of people instead of forming a close relationship with a small group who you can pour your life into and change them and they can replicate it forever? If you're not challenged by that, well, maybe we need to, we need to give you some CPR because this is, this is important stuff. Church is not about putting on a show for the crowds. It's, and for the crowds, it's not about being a consumer and I'm a spectator and I pay my money and I listen and oh, I'm entertained, clap, clap, clap and I leave. No, it's about being part of a small group who are discipled. We love our leader and he loves us and he shepherds us and pours his life into us and grows us and we then go out and do the same with other people. Can you see the difference? How far the church has gone off track. How many people have you discipled? How much have you yourself been discipled? Or have you just been a consumer of a product? How much have you been discipled? Wow. Jesus didn't worry about the multitudes. He chose a small crowd and poured himself into them. This verse in Mark chapter 3 gives us... Another version or another point of view on what Jesus did. It says, Then he appointed the twelve that they might be with him. So it's split up into three sections. He appointed the twelve that they might be with him. So there's a relationship aspect. That's the first thing. Secondly, that he might send them out to preach. So there's a task Element. We've got a job to achieve. And then the third aspect is that they might have power to heal sicknesses and cast out demons. That's an empowering or a developing aspect. There are three aspects to discipleship. One, relationship. Relationship. I know you, you know me. I'm not putting on a show or a pretense. This is the real me. 
<laughs> Do you see that? That they might be with him. That they might see what he looks like when he first wakes up in the morning. That they might see how he reacts when he stubs his toe. That they might be with him and really know him. Secondly, that he might send them out to preach. There's a job. Part of discipleship is let's do this job together. It's not just you teach me and I sit back and consume. No, we've got a task to achieve. And then thirdly, that they might have power to heal and to cast out demons. It's helping you get developed and empowered to do what you need to do. That is discipleship. Relationship, job, empowering. Again, is that happening in your life? I'm going to close now. How do we choose disciples? How do we choose disciples? How did Jesus choose disciples? We get a very good picture in 2 Timothy 2 verse 2, where Paul, the great Paul, tells his beloved son Timothy how to choose disciples. Listen to this verse. In 2 Timothy 2 verse 2, Paul says to Timothy, choose some fat men. Listen to this. He says, And the things that you have heard from me among many witnesses. So there's this crowd element where Paul preached to multitudes, but he was focusing on discipling Timothy. He says, the things you've heard me say when we've been doing the task, when we've been doing all the stuff together, entrust these to Faithful men, that's the F of fat. Faithful men who are able, that's the A, to teach others. That's the T. He says, the way that you choose disciples is you find faithful men who are able to teach others. Faithful men who are able to teach others. Choose somebody who you can pour your life into who will then be able to replicate it, who will then choose some other people and they will start discipling them. Folks, I'm deeply challenged by this. I'm deeply challenged. You know, we do church on a Sunday and it's wonderful and people come and we're going to start putting it on the internet and people are going to watch and we have people listening to our podcasts in different parts of the world and I'm so grateful for that. But what we need is to disciple people who will then disciple other people. We must, we must do that. Amen? We must. Otherwise, this all just disintegrates and disperses at some stage in the future. The only way for it to be sustainable and multiply is for us to disciple people who will disciple others. Choose a few faithful people who are able to teach others. You know, Jesus only did that for 12. And then, let me just tell you what happened. In Luke 6, he chose 12. In Luke 9, he sent out the 12 two by two to go and do the ministry. I don't, I'm, I'm not going to read it now. But he says, go out, preach, heal the sick, cast out demons. And he tells them to go out and do it. And they come back and he listens to what they say. And he was watching them and he's helping them, guiding them. So he's developing them in this. And then in Luke 10, it says he sent out 70. <clears throat> and some versions of the Bible say 72. 70 or 72. I like 72 because 72 is 6 times 12. 
You know what I think happened? And this is just Greg thinking. Jesus sends out the 12 two by two. So there's six little groups of them. They go out and they do the ministry. And then he says to them, now each of you little groups of two, you pick another 12. Suddenly we got 72. Okay, you're going to disciple them. I'm discipling you, you're discipling them. We're watching each other, we're training, we're pouring our lives into other people. And he sent out the 70 or the 72. They went out and they came back and they said, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. They were rejoicing, they were full of joy because they were doing miracles. Jesus' power was being replicated. And then, so there was... 12, then there were 70, and by the end of his life, there were 120 who were committed enough to sit in a small room. Forget the multiplied thousands who followed him and got healed and, and he said, wow, you're wonderful. It was just those 120 who remained. Friends, this is what we've got to do. The leader of the church, the elders, Greg and James and our wives, cannot disciple everybody. It's just not possible. Amen? It's not possible. You know, in, in modern day church, we've got it so weird where we think the pastor is the only one who can disciple and everyone else must just sit back and be spectators. That's not it. Ephesians 4 says, God gave apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry. Our job is to help you disciple other people. That's it. <laughs> you know, some people think, oh, the minister, he's trained and he's qualified and he's paid, so he must be the one who gets people saved. But shepherds don't give birth to sheep. Sheep give birth to sheep. <laughs> Our job is to try and help everybody we try to disciple as many as we can, but help people disciple other people. Then we grow. Then the kingdom starts to expand. Are you starting to get a picture of how church could be? It's not a, it's not a performance. It's not a production. It's not, I, it, it's not a case of I'm the consumer and I decide wh- what I want to consume. No. Where can I be in a discipleship relationship? And where can I disciple others? That's church. That's real life. Not how can I impress the crowds and let me get a platform to impress as many people as I can. No, no. Let me choose a few and pour my life into them. And they pour their lives into others. Right. Let's close. Can I ask the musicians just to come up and play? Can I borrow this? <coughs> right, please would we, let's just stand together and let's imagine, imagine the scene. Jesus is up on the, on the mountain and he's praying and then he comes down and all the disciples are around him and he chooses some. Let's just focus. Say, Lord Jesus, what are you saying to me right now from this picture and from this story? Jesus, what are you saying to me? What are you saying to me, Lord? What are you wanting me to do? 
How are you wanting me to change my thinking, my life? For some of us, it's just a decision to pray more. To spend time with the Lord, praying and reading His Word. Lord, help us, please. Lord, we can try in our own strength, but we pray for Your power to help us to pray more. To spend time, to go away and be alone and spend time in Your presence. Help us, Lord. Lord, we make the the commitment to do it, but we need your power to help us do it. Help us to put time aside in our calendars, in our diaries, in our our schedules to, to spend time with you, Lord. Folks, will you do that? Will you decide today, yes, I will do that. I'll prioritize time with the Lord. And then secondly, it's this whole thing of discipleship. Am I a disciple? <laughs> Am I being discipled? Am I growing? Am I being trained? And am I training anybody else? I'm just going to ask you to consider that and decide how you need to change things in your life to make that happen.